and thanks for calling Sports Stories with Denny Lennon, the top-rated video podcast in the Sentinella Adobe Corridor. Please leave a message. Hey, Denny. This is Paul. I'd like to tell you, I really like your podcast. It's very insightful. It inspires me to write some good songs. And you know who else likes your podcast? Ringo. Hey, Ringo. Come talk to Denny Lennon. Hello, Denny. I like your podcast. It's got a lot of peace and love. And that's what it's all about. This world goes around with peace and love. You know, John was about peace and love. Oh, Ringo, let's not bring up John. He's not related. He's an American. It's Denny Lennon from America. Well, then why did you give me the bloody phone? By its very nature, sports are unpredictable, visceral, and dramatic. Follow a sport or a team or a player, and you'll follow a story arc, ones that are sometimes worthy of a movie. The three sports that have had the most films made about them are boxing, American football, and baseball. It seems logical that America's pastime would lend itself to movie making, but baseball's greatest players do not exactly fare as well in acting as they do in playing ball, even when they play themselves. In 1920, the first year Babe Ruth was a New York Yankee, he played himself in a biopic called Heading Home. He really should have never have left home. His acting was so bad, you could tell even though it was a silent film. Another all-time baseball great, Jackie Robinson, channeled uh, himself to play the title role in the 1950 release of The Jackie Robinson Story. I mean, if you're going to have a film made about yourself in one of the most seminal moments in our country's history, I suppose you would be the one who knows how it really went down. Suppose I collide with you at second base, and when I get up, I say you... You dirty black so-and-so. What do you do? Mr. Ricky, do you want a ball player who's afraid to fight back? I want a ball player with guts enough not to fight back. You've got to do this job with base hits, stolen bases, and fielding ground balls, Jackie. Nothing else. Now I'm playing against you in a World Series, and I'm hot-headed. I want to win this game. So I go into you spikes first. You jab the ball in my ribs, and the umpire says out. High flare. All I can see is your black face. That black face right over me. So I haul off and punch you right in the cheek. What do you do? Mr. Ricky, I've got two cheeks. Good. You want a contact with the Black Panthers? Maybe leaving the acting to the actors is the best strategy. For my money, the best baseball actor of all time is Kevin Costner. Case in point, his role is Crash Davis in the 1988 hit movie Bull Durham. How about when Crash calls his shot and goes deep. Come on, mate. Throw me that weak ass shit. You getting that cheese by me. Bring it. Bring it. Bring it. Costner grew up in Southern California and was, like all of us that grew up in the Southland, entertained and influenced by the Dodgers and their most valuable employee, the greatest baseball announcer of all time, Vin Scully. No one was ever better at calling a game and making it sound and feel like a movie even if you were just listening on the radio. Can you imagine how Costner must have felt to have Vin play himself as the broadcaster for the 1999 movie For the Love of the Game, where Costner plays Billy Chappell, a pitcher, working on a perfect game in the final game of his storied career. To push the sun back up in the sky and give us one more day of summer. Actually, Kevin let those of us lucky enough to be at Dodger Stadium 
on September 24 of 2016 know exactly how he felt when he paid tribute to the GOAT of baseball broadcasters on Vin Scully night as the sun set in beautiful Chavez Ravine. We will miss you in our radio, in our cars, in our backyard. You've been a gift to Los Angeles and to baseball itself. Then there's a movie, the 1989 Academy Award-nominated film Field of Dreams. The final scene, which was shot during the magic hour, has touched so many people that a book has been written about it. There's a baseball field carved out of rows of corn at a farmhouse in Iowa, and Costner, playing Ray Kinsella, delivers what just might be the greatest line in baseball movie history. Hey, Dad? You want to have a catch? I'd like that. Well, why don't we let our guest, Ray Kinsella's dad from the movie, answer that question. I'm a Venice, California-born, Los Angeles-based sports fan. One that has played, coached, announced, and promoted sports my whole life. My love affair with sports started in my own backyard and has led me to this podcast. Thanks to the support of the Amateur Athletic Union in East Bay, I'm excited to bring you Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. Hello, sports historians, and welcome to Audio Video Podcast number 81 of Sports Stories with Denny Lennon as we bring you our Baseball Goes to the Movie special. Our special guest on this episode is Dwyer Brown, who plays Kevin Costner's dad in the pivotal scene in the Field of Dreams. Marley Rice is producing from the Buck Studios, so let's go to the movies. We're talking about uh, the book, If You Build It, from Dwyer Brown. Great book. I really uh, did enjoy it. Um, there's parts of it, Dwyer one of the books I read to my children often when they were little was Pablo Coelho's um, The Alchemist. And the beauty of like just the soul of the world will take care of you if your pursuit is noble. And um, and there was there was just I felt that kind of that feeling, that same feeling when I first read that book. And especially when I read it to my kids when they were younger, uh, I kind of felt that like as you started to bump into people throughout your life, how how good storytelling brought out that kind of emotion. Well, you're very kind to include me with that book. But uh, yeah, I, I always wanted to write a book and, and I tried to write it. I tried to write it from my sort of naive farm boy point of view, because that way you sort of see the world as it was opening up to me. And, uh, you know, I just had so many great things happen to me and, and such good luck in show business, I think. And, uh, you know, so uh, I, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Thank you. So the, you're, you're, um, you've been getting killed a lot in, in, in your plays and uh, in, in movies and, and TV. And then you saw the script and you had previously been introduced to the book by, um, by W.P. Uh, Kinsella, right? But you, you know the, the book Shoeless Joe. So you knew of it before you heard about the, the yeah, movie? I had a, a high school buddy who was a, a creative writing major and, and, and he had found it and sent it to me. And, and you know, I just loved it. It's, it's a really fine, fine book. And... Uh, so then, you know, and this this happens in show business, you know, even the Thornbirds comes from, you know, a great book. And 
you get to read, you know, the whole novel uh, or or whatever, uh, and and get to play a character, and it is is just adds to the excitement of of show business. I think. Um, when when you you found out about this, it it kind of seemed like you know you hadn't been necessarily. I mean, the fall guy didn't exactly fulfill you, so. <laughs> You had this opportunity and you saw something significant in this. And I would imagine when you, when you went to audition for it, there was an extra little surge or energy or, or something that, that said, you know, let's, let's get this. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a really beautiful script and they just don't come along that often. I mean, a lot of people who've been in, in show business a long time, you know, you, you're usually kind of like, oh gosh, I wish this was just a little better writing, but the, the, it was such a beautiful book that it came from, and Phil Robinson, who directed it and, and yeah. wrote the screenplay, changed some key elements in it. Uh, I remember when I went to the audition, I I wanted to audition, you know, get there, and I wanted to ask him if there was a bigger part I could audition for. And uh, it's because it, one of the great things Phil did with the book is, in the novella, the character of John Kinsella appears fairly early, like maybe chapter two or three, and kind of continues throughout the story and oh, okay. so he doesn't have the, the, the character doesn't have the impact that, that, you know, my character ended up having in the movie. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I wanted to play one of the other ball players or something, but you know, you, you go with what you can and, and, you know, I'm certainly glad that, uh, you know, they, they, they cast me in this part because I didn't know till we actually saw the finished product, how much the whole movie is about my character because, that was something that Phil added to uh, to the book, I think, in a in a significant way. Um, do you mind just you know a quick little summary? I mean, about the the book or or not the book rather, but about the, the story. In case and people aren't familiar with the story, uh, the scandal that caught up the Black Sox or the then called Black Sox and Shoeless Joe and so forth. Yeah, uh, well, basically the the, the story uh, of Field of Dreams and Shoeless Joe is about an Iowa farmer. Uh, Ray Kinsella, who who was played by Kevin in the movie, uh, he hears a voice while he's out in his cornfield that says, "If you build it, he will come." And he doesn't understand it. He he's never heard voices before. He's confused, but he keeps hearing this voice, and he somehow understands that it means if he builds a baseball field in the middle of his cornfield, that Shoeless Joe Jackson will get to come back from the dead and play baseball again. And for those of you who don't know, as, as, as Denny mentioned, there were in the 1919 uh, World Series, it, uh, the White Sox were accused of throwing the the series, and uh, you know that which they lost, of course. And there was a big trial, and um, nine baseball players were, I guess it was, well, yeah, yeah, from eight men out, which is also about that. But eight eight men, including Shoeless Joe Jackson, were were banned from baseball for the rest of their lives, even though they weren't they weren't found guilty, and even though Shoeless Joe had a better batting average than anybody on either team, yeah. had no, no error. error. There's no yeah. real evidence to support the fact that they were working hard to throw the baseball games, uh, but they were banned from baseball nonetheless. Uh, Shoeless Joe went on to play in kind of you know local leagues and textile leagues down yeah. in South Carolina, where he's from, and you know, ended up, you know, having the best years of his career taken away from him for what a lot of people think was, was an unfair, um, uh, uh, you know, conviction or wasn't even a conviction actually. Anyway, in the story, uh, uh, Ray goes on this quest 
and uh, Shoeless Joe appears and Shoeless Joe sends him off to find, well, in the novella, he has to find J.D. Salinger, the actual writer. It's it's a very interesting part of the story, but they, they changed that because they were worried J.D. Salinger, who is a, you know, a noted recluse would have sued them if they had used his name in it. So they, they created the character of Terrence Mann, who was played by James Earl Jones. Uh, they go to find Terrence Mann and they have to watch a game in Fenway and another secret message appears on the scoreboard, which sends uh, sends Ray to Chisholm, Minnesota. Uh, and Terrence Mann at the last minute admits that he saw it too. So off they go together to find um, Archibald Moonlight Graham, who was uh, also a real baseball player who only played in one inning in the major leagues. Uh, W.P. Kinsella, who wrote the book, was was an avid fan, loved the baseball uh, encyclopedia, found this guy who it looked like had only played in one game for his, his entire career and never got to bat. Um, anyway, he's he's he brought him into the novella. They find uh, uh, our, uh, Sh uh, Moonlight Graham, who's now a doctor in Minnesota, and they bring him back to the field and he gets to play as Archibald Graham. It's, okay. it's 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 beautiful. It's, it involves redemption. It involves righting some wrongs from the past, and, and these things. Um, so I'm a little curious about some of the play. Um, some of the actors are in it. You mentioned. Um, so by this time, Ray Liotta, Liotta didn't have a huge name. He had done some work, but but he, I I I don't know if he had any like one big hit. He certainly hadn't done, um, you know, any of his biggest work, but he fit the part because he. You just look dangerous standing there. Right. I think that's what Phil needed from that character is someone who evokes a kind of presence, even when they're not doing anything. And, and, and Ray certainly does that. He had, uh, you know, he obviously went on to a great career, but he, uh, you know, he's, he'd only done a few movies and, and usually tends to play scary people. Uh, and then, then you got a chance to meet um, Burt Lancaster, who uh, I found it interesting. You know, you were always, uh, enamored with guys like Jimmy Stewart and Burt Lancaster and some of the the greats from that era, and here he is. You get to meet one of those these guys. Yeah, I I yeah, that was just such a joy. And you know, I was only I was only originally hired to to be in the movie. I had a three day contract for Field of Dreams. I ended up staying for two weeks, and uh, you know, I could talk about that later. But I just happened to be you know one of my first days was was Burt Lancaster's last day. So I just desperately wanted to say hello, at least, you know, I, this is just, you know, here's a, uh, you know, an, uh, an idol of mine. And uh, he was, everybody was saying he, he was kind of grumpy for the whole shoot. It was, it was, there was a drought in, in uh, Iowa when we were shooting the movie, the corn wouldn't grow, but it was really hot. And uh, Lancaster was the kind who'd wear his wool suit with his overcoat and sit out in the sun and try to guilt trip the director who was a it's his second time directing and he's basically a writer he was trying to you know kind of make him feel bad and, and get the you know production moving and uh so he was a bit grumpy and i also think because you know burt lancaster was a world-class athlete i mean he had a baseball scholarship to to syracuse i think and he was an acrobat who did you know a show yeah. in vaudeville i think it was hard for him to watch the younger guys you know, out on the field playing when, when he was, you know, kind of no longer able to. And uh, anyway, so he, he was kind of, everybody was saying, don't go near, please don't go near Bert. He'll chew your head off. And I just couldn't help myself. And fortunately he was very, very nice. And we just had a very, you know, I got to tell him how much I admired him. And, you know, he, he gave me the little wink and 
Nice. Anyway, it was great. He must also have been a good swimmer because I, I remember him rolling around in the sand and not drowning in From Here to Eternity. Right, yeah, and he did the swimmer too. That or what's is that the one where he swims across the pool? <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, he um, the the other things that were interesting. You, you mentioned that there was a drought going on in Iowa at that time, and so there was this concern. Uh, but but the guy who um, owned the place was Don Lansing, and he he owned the, the farm, and and he kind of benefited on some level because he got his house remodeled, and then his corn grew when everybody else was taking a hit because they put so much extra effort into that. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I, I think uh, Don Lansing was the guy whose whose life changed even more than mine by the uh, by the movie picking his farm out of a million farms. I mean, they were actually going to shoot the movie in Canada because at the time, I don't know if, if you remember, but the dollar was very strong in Canada and a lot of productions were going up to Vancouver and they mm. were going to shoot this at a farm in Ontario. And, and it was, you know, just hours away from being a done deal. And, and, uh, and somebody sent up another videotape of flybys of farms in Iowa and, and Phil chose this one instead. But this guy was a bachelor who was living in his, his, the house he had been born in, but living there alone. And it was trashed. I mean, he was a, you know, he, he, he was just kind of a, a, a nerdy farmer who, you know, the, so that the production crew came in and tore out walls so that the camera could move uh, more freely inside the house. They, you know, put a new staircase, they put that wrap around porch around it. They put in the bay windows and, and put in air conditioning in this house that was, you know, 120 years old that had never, yeah, never even thought about it. So, yeah. And then on top of that, uh, when the corn wouldn't grow, they, they got special permission to water his corn. And, um, uh, and so, you know, the other local farmers around were were pretty jealous. I'll bet. Um, they they also had the good sense. They were they just watered the corn that was around where the field was going to be built because it, you know, the movie starts out there's no field there, but they figured that as you look down the corn rows into the distance, the corn gets smaller anyway because of perspective. And if they could just get the corn around the field to be big enough that we could walk into it without, you know, without looking like, you know, we're walking into knee high corn. Uh, but anyway, really. they got very lucky when they started putting the, um, the water on the corn and that heat, it just grew like, like it was in a greenhouse, you know, it, yeah. it was, to, the, to the point that the corn got too tall. So they're trying to shoot Kevin watering the corn and you can't even see him because the corn's like, you know, nine feet tall. So they had to build a little platform between <laughs> the rows of corn so that Kevin could walk and be seen above it like he's examining the corn. And, uh, but you know, if he'd walk in a few more steps, he would have dropped right off the, the uh, platform and into the abyss. I, um, I, I was cracking up on how you said that like Don would just show up, all of a sudden you turn around and you'd just be there. And it was almost like he was coming out of the corn, you know, just to, to pop up at the oddest times and then just carry on a conversation with you. Yeah, he, he was a really uh, just an eccentric, very, very funny guy. And because I'd grown up with farmers my whole life, uh, you know, I used to bale hay for for local farmers, and and you know, there, you know, sometimes there's a reason why people live so far out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. Don, Don was a very friendly guy, and he couldn't have been more excited. He was, I mean, he was the 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 uh, master of ceremonies for their Fourth of July parade that year because you know he sat on a back of a convertible as they drove through downtown Dyersville. He was like a local celebrity from from this farmer who, you know wasn't even making a full living at farming. He had a daytime job with John Deere, uh, John Deere tractor factory. So, uh, yeah, he was, he was hanging out with movie stars. And, and so, yeah, he was, he was, uh, pretty stoked. Hey everyone, Marley here. 
we are so proud to have secured a new sponsor. My organization, welcome to the SSDL family. Hi, my friends. I'm Maya, founder of my organization, I Mindfully Align Inventory. From kitchens, workspaces, bedrooms, and more, I find joy in helping people like you get organized by bringing a peace of mind and alignment to your life and by creating functional systems that work best for you. My organization has four pillars, process, purge, prepare, and perfect. These are essential to getting your inventory mindfully aligned. Schedule a consultation today and let's work together to get you organized. Point of pride for a Dodger fan like myself is that it was the Dodgers um, uh, field maintenance guy or uh, team yeah. that came out to do the uh, construction of the field. Yeah, and boy, did we need them because, um, you know, once they got the corn to the right height, then we started, you know, like the, the weekend it was tall enough, then they had to chop it all down to build the baseball field, which was, you know, kind of ironic that they spent all this time to get the corn seven feet tall just so they could plow it under with a tractor and right. they managed to put in that whole baseball field on fourth of july weekend they got uh well, four, four local high, high school baseball teams to come and and volunteer carrying the sod yeah. out there and, and laying it out and uh you know i mean they just did a fantastic job a lot of labor over a weekend because they couldn't afford to lose the shooting days at that point and uh you know as soon as they laid the sod down it just died i mean it was you know 90 plus degrees every day so the, the the beautiful sod they'd put in looked beautiful and green for like, you know, two days and then it turned brown immediately. So these guys from, uh, from Dodger Stadium just painted it, you know, yeah. they'd ride around on the back of the little gators with a huge, uh, you know, Hudson sprayer and they just sprayed the whole thing green. And Hollywood. you see it and it looks gorgeous. But I remember when we would do the scene when we were walking, just, you know, walking across the field to, you know, having our little conversation between, uh, you know, Ray Kinsella and his dad, you hear and it's, yeah. it's like you're walking on Easter grass. It was just, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of unnerving. And, you know, the sound people were, you know, were having fits because, you know, it wasn't like walking on grass where it's fairly quiet. It was more like walking on gravel, you know. It's, it's so interesting because, <clears throat> The, the whole movie has, you know, this kind of mystical quality to it. There's certainly, you're starting to get this feeling if you build it, he will come and you think it's about Shoeless Joe or you think he's he's having some redemption with his father because he's given Shoeless Joe and, and those guys that were blackballed an opportunity to play again. And then just as you, you, you do catch on and he doesn't get to go out in the corn like James Earl Jones' character does, that he points over and, and there you are. And that scene if you could just kind of explain a little bit about the magic hour and how they decided to shoot that so it but it came out brilliant and it and it, it it signifies everything that you want that that scene to be and i think that's why it has such resonance but maybe you could tell a little bit about how, how they shot that day after day in the in the magic hour yeah uh like i said i'd been hired for three days they were just going to shoot that scene just like any other scene and you know down and dirty and get it done but when i got there they were already way behind shooting because the corn wouldn't grow and they had to shoot everything that didn't involve corn and wait, try to wait for the corn to arrive. And among those decisions, they decided to shoot that scene at magic hour, which is that 15 minutes of golden light just after sunset. So uh, that meant that 
you know, we could only shoot a little chunk of it every day. It's only a six minute scene, but you know, it takes quite a bit longer than that, obviously to shoot it. So they would be shooting inside the house and it would get close to sunset. And, you know, the production, you know, coordinator would tell everybody, okay, out to the field and the whole crew would run out there and set up the dolly track or, you know, put up reflectors and all that kind of stuff. And then we'd get everything set up. We'd rehearse it a couple of times. And then we just wait for just after the sun would go, go down. And, and John Lindley, who was the DP would be checking his light meter and, uh, and then we'd say, okay, uh, you know, rolling action, you know, and I'd say, is this heaven? Yeah. Give it to me again. Is this heaven? Okay, that's all we have time for today. Let's wrap, you know. And then oh, we come wow. back the next day and turn it around, and Kevin would say, no, it's it's Iowa. No, it's Iowa. And so we pieced the scene together sort of that way because that's all we had time, you know, all we had the light to do. And I think there was one day where there were more clouds in the sky than there had been any of the other days and they realized that it wasn't going to match. So we had to just kind of cancel uh, the, the corn shoot for that day. But uh, as a result, we had to do the scene over and over and over and over again for two weeks, which is, you know, kind of difficult with a scene that's so, uh, you know, tenuous and emotional and all that. But um, I, I love how you were trying to get back into character and then all of a sudden Don would come out of the corn yeah. and he'd say, Hey, yeah. Yeah, he he was so sweet, but just really didn't understand the whole thing, you know. So you'd be there trying to get into character and just ready for this big emotional scene. Hi, how's it going? Beautiful day, isn't it? You know, you'd be like, thanks, Don. Yeah, I got it. You know, but, um, you know, he he's just the sweetest guy, and you know, to this day, you know, we've stayed in touch. He's he's a, he's a good guy. So, you know, the 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 scene ended up. I think you know, as we kept doing it, I think even the cast uh, or the crew members who were who were just doing the lights and all that stuff, they would get very quiet. Because I think, you know, they started to realize that this was the kind of pivotal moment. And I think everybody who was living in Iowa when they wanted to be back home in, in, in L.A. or, or mm -hmm. New York, they, they were missing people and missing their dads. And I think they all sort of felt that their own dads were there. And so they, they, were, they were really generous with, with Kevin and I when we would shoot that scene. Everybody would be very, very respectful. And, uh, you know, and, and I, think, I think they're bringing their fathers to the scene helped give that scene more resonance, you know, in the final product. There was a lot of pressure on you guys to make sure you kept the ball in the air. No, no drops on that catch. Cause you know, you're doing all of these in increments and you had to deal with like a 1950s catcher catcher's mitt. Yeah. They, they gave me this mitt. I, that was just, you know, a solid rock, you know, it, you know, it had to look period and all that stuff. And, you know, I, what was weird about it is you could really not even tell when the ball had hit the mitt. So I was just, you know, cause I thought I hadn't thought of this at all because, you know, playing catch, I wasn't supposed to play baseball. I wasn't worried about it. You know, I, I went to the batting cage a few times, but I wasn't too concerned about it. But then I suddenly realized like, what if they build this whole movie, you know, and everybody's getting emotional and there's the father. Oh my gosh. And then they throw the ball to me and hits the mitt and drops. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, like, what an idiot I would have looked like. And, you know, catch. and because we were shooting this in these little 15 minute increments, I knew we weren't going to get a lot of coverage, a lot of takes on these things. So, I mean, I just made sure that I did not drop the ball. So, you know, I, uh, some of my friends tease me about how it looks like I'm, you know, the ball hits the mitt and my hands over it. Like, Oh, you know, I, I was desperate not to look, uh, look foolish in it, but uh, you know, it's nerve wracking. You never think of that when you're just playing catch with your, your kid, your son or your daughter out in the yard. But, you know, when you've got a you know million dollar shot hanging on it, you uh, you, you take extra care. There's um, what's what's okay. So then you, you, this pivotal scene, the wonderful scene they shot of uh, all the cars coming, 
they brilliant how they do that. It's really detailed well in the book. But um, then I think you get a inkling of what's going on because you go and you stand in the back of a theater and watch it one time and you see the emotion that comes out. So, I mean, all of that effort paid off and it really does have this crazy resonance with people that watch it. And, um, and you got to see that firsthand. And I mean, even right now I'm watching the comments that are coming by and somebody said they met you in Hudson Valley and had Mm -hmm. a catch. Somebody else says my dad was a little league coach and you could just see people connected so strongly with that. And then, and then it started to really follow you in your life. Yeah, it was a very strange experience. I'd, you know, been acting for nine or 10 years when that happened. And, but it wasn't the type of role, generally speaking, that I'd get, you know, recognized in public, you know, even Stuart Cleary in, in the Thornbirds was a, you know, that was a very popular miniseries, but it was only after Field of Dreams that, you know, I would just have people kind of eyeing me from across a, a store or something. And I would think I'm like, oh gosh, you know, do I know that person? And and they'd come over and they'd be like, did we go to high school together? And I said, I don't know. I, I went to high school in Ohio. I, I doubt it. And then they'd be, oh my, you, are you an actor? We, you were in Field of Dreams, weren't you? You were the father. And, you know, and I'd be like, yeah, I mean, this would be years later. I just couldn't believe people had that kind of memory for for faces or something. And and frequently it would go into a very touching story about their their fathers and how that movie reminds them you know, every year they watch it to be beginning of baseball season. And, you know, um, because my father had died just 30 days before I went to, yeah. went to go shoot the movie, it, it made those encounters that much more resonant for me because I felt like it was my dad's way of checking in with me, you know, through, through somebody else. And, um, you That's know, so- I get emotional. I, I mean, a lot of these guys, uh, you know, I see them at ballparks and everybody's just having a good time watching a minor league. Uh, baseball game and uh, you know people break out these stories that you know I wonder if they've ever told anybody before and for some reason because of my place in that movie they feel like we have this rapport and that you know they need to tell me about their dad because you know I substituted for their dad after he was gone or or, or whatever it's, it's very it's very touching and some really moving um, some really moving revelations that might have never came out had that movie not prompted this so whether it's a woman who goes with with who she thinks is her uncle who's been there her whole life because she thinks her father died in in the war uh in the vietnam war but in fact he is her her father and finally admits it to her for you know reasons he had to keep that hidden or you know a son is able to come out to his father and say i'm gay or somebody go you know and it just it's story after story and it's so beautiful because that the, somehow that scene just triggers that emotion and it allows for that father, son or daughter, father, or whatever to, to make that leap. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, what's interesting is for, for the 25 years, I thought that this was happening to James Earl and, and to sure. Robinson, the director and Kevin and stuff that people were coming up and, and it only when I was getting around to writing the book that I realized, well, if you run into Kevin Costner somewhere, there's a dozen movies you want to talk to him about. And, you know, and, and, and James Earl the same way. But for me, even though I've done, you know, a hundred other shows, this is the one that's, that resonates. So, and because, because those guys did such a great job of opening the audience's heart. And then I just kind of take my catcher's mask off and, and, and walk right into their hearts. I think it's my face that they associate with that moment, which is you know, just great good luck on my part. But, 
um, you know, it, it made it feel more uh, important that I, I write the book and kind of try to share some of those stories and and the effect that it's had on me and, you know, clearly has had on, you know, a lot of people who've seen the movie. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, again, I, I really encourage everybody to get and read the book. It, it, it's beautiful as you go through it. Hey, everyone, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dwyer Brown. If you're interested in purchasing his book, you can head on over to DwyerBrown.com to purchase If You Build It. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we will see you next week. Thanks for watching and listening. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is produced by Christine Jinbo and me, Marley Rice. Directed by Chris M. Alport with studio support from Alpha Command Unit and shot by bad boy Bobby McCall. Original music, courtesy of Lennon Music Production, and original images, courtesy of Sienna Lennon Photography. A big thank you to all of our contributors. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is a production of Sports Stories, Inc. You can find us on audio platforms everywhere and the High School Narrative iOS app. You can also view Denny's shows on Roku, Apple TV, and Fire TV. Make sure to press that subscribe button, give us a review, leave a comment. It will really help us grow the show. Hey, you know what else would help us grow the show? Hustle on over to patreon.com slash Denny Lennon to get some never-before-seen videos, pictures, interviews, and more. We are all over social media and constantly sending out clips on Facebook, conducting fun polls on Twitter, going live on Instagram, and more. To find all our social media links, hustle on over to sportsstoriesdl.com. SSDL proudly supports the My Stuff Bags Foundation and the Heroes Movement. The My Stuff Bags Foundation, with the help of thousands of people across the country, provides children in unfortunate situations with new belongings and new hope through its innovative My Stuff Bags program. Heroes Movement is a nonprofit that bridges the gap from therapy to getting strong again through small group workouts for any veteran of the United States Armed Forces for free. Links to how you can support and help these foundations can be found on our website. We want to give a big thank you to our partners of the show. So, as Coach Lennon would say, any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email me, Marley, at info at sportsstoriespodcast.com. Sports Stories thanks all of our followers and listeners. And we will, we will see, see you, you next time. time. Hey, thanks, Marley. Thanks, Chris. You light up my life. You give me hope to carry on. You light up my days and fill my nights with love. Sports stories with Danny Lennon. It'll light up your life. <laughs> Kick it out, book! <laughs>